I think the best definition I ever heard was like, diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being invited to dance. Ever imagined you could be mentored and guided by some of the most influential leaders in business? That's where 40 Minute Mentor comes in. I'm passionate about making business mentorship accessible to everyone. So whether you're just beginning your career or you're looking for advice in taking the leap and starting a new venture, or perhaps you're scaling a rocket ship, this show is designed to cover everything from the ground up in the next 40 minutes. In today's 40 Minute Mentor episode, I speak to the highly impressive and very charismatic Gary Stewart, founder and CEO of Founder Tribes. Gary has had such a varied life and career. He was born in Jamaica, raised in the Bronx, studied at Yale to become a lawyer, and then moved to Europe where his entrepreneurial journey began. Gary's a startup expert and has helped launch over 185 businesses during his time as MD at Wira. Last year, he launched Founder Tribes, an app designed to democratize entrepreneurship by providing founders of all races, genders, and socioeconomic backgrounds with the advice, networks, and capital they need to be successful. We cover a whole range of topics in today's episode, including diversity and inclusion, what Gary looks for in founders, and the importance of networking. I'm sure you're going to get a ton from Gary's thought-provoking and candid perspectives. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode with the brilliant Gary Stewart. Gary, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. Thank you so much for joining us. We are going to kick this off, as we always like to, with a quick fire 30 second intro to you and your CV. So are you ready? If you can finish these sentences with the first thing that comes to your head. So when I was younger, I always wanted to be a lawyer. Nice. My first job was? A paper route. Ah, classic, classic. <laughs> when starting my career, I wish I'd have known? That you should always follow what you really love. Love it. I became an entrepreneur because? I needed to make money in Spain and I didn't want to go with a local salary. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get into that a bit more. I'm most energized at work when I'm? In charge. Love it. The most exciting thing in my calendar this week is? This interview. Ah, oh, yes, that charmer. That and uh, we just closed our round. So yeah, that was actually pretty exciting. Oh, congratulations. What a day. Right. Awesome. Champagne at the ready. <laughs> and finally, can you share something with our listeners that we wouldn't learn from your CV, whether that's a perceived failure or something, some sort of setback in your career that you've learned from? Yeah, no, actually, I wrote about it in Forbes. It was about like 10 years ago already. And it was my first company in offline real estate business when Spain kind of started to have some issues. It went under. And yeah, it was like a really painful experience, kind of like the first time I think I'd ever experienced failure, like real failure, and then kind of real failure that had like financial consequences. And so I think that that was a kind of pretty difficult experience. It took a while to kind of like get out of it. Um, but then, yeah, um, but then I started again. Stronger for it. Yeah. No, thank you very much for sharing that. Well, I'm sure we'll dig into some of these things in a bit more detail, but thank you for giving us that snapshot of you. I wanted to, to get into your career. So for, for the benefit of our listeners um, who might not know a bit about your background, it'd be great to understand a bit more about some of the influences that shaped who you are today. So I know you were born in Jamaica, raised in the Bronx. You've lived 
much of your life in Europe, so truly international. I wanted to ask if growing up in many different countries had an impact on the way that you view the world and what has that meant for your career? Yeah, no, I think it's a really good question because it definitely shaped who I am. Like when I lived in America, even though like racism was a big problem, like I also knew that I was from a country originally, at least, where black people had positions of power. You know what I mean? So it means that a lot of that kind of, you know, self-hatred or kind of like internalization of negative images that you see on the media, like they were one reference point for me, but I had another one, right? And then I think when I moved to England and then to Spain eventually, um, those were two other cultures. So I, I saw the way like people dealt with black people in England, for example. I was like really surprised that there were so many like interracial relationships, because in America, those were still kind of taboo. Like Julia Roberts, I think, was not even allowed to kiss Denzel Washington in the Pelican Brief. It was a, a movie from, like, I guess, like in the 90s, or early 2000s. Uh, even though in the book, it was a John Grisham novel. In the book, they were like lovers. But in the movie, they became like friends because they didn't think America's sweetheart could kiss like a black man, even if he's Denzel Washington. Wow. Whereas when I came to the UK, it was like interracial couples were like everywhere, you know, and all the kids seemed to be like biracial and they were kind of like old. So it was kind of... That was a different thing. And in Spain, then you see like the conflicts had nothing to do with like skin color. It was like based on like conflicts that were hundreds of years old, the Catalans versus the Spanish. And I had always thought like, or the, the, the Castilians, I guess you're supposed to say. And I had always thought they were all the same, right? I'm like, and even being from New York, you're like, oh, isn't that like, you think everybody's like a Latino. And then all of a sudden you're like, no, they all come, I guess, in some way from Spain. And in Spain, like the vast people are against the kind of Catalans are against, so it just changes your whole sense of like identity and like what matters. And like, you just realize how fake and meaningless a lot of it is. And I think then from a career point of view, it's just really freeing, right? Because it means that like, I don't have to be bound by what other people think of me because I understand that that's often contextual and really irrelevant to me. So kind of like I live in my own world and I don't need other people to tell me who I am. I know who I am and I understand that that's going to change based on who they are. And I don't really care. Yeah, love that. Love that. That's really interesting. Do you think that perspective and your your kind of, I guess, international experience of living in different countries has helped you think about business from a global perspective as well? I guess, thinking about your your current business and previous experiences. Yeah. So with the current business, which is Founded Tribes, it's all about giving entrepreneurs around the world access to like to feedback, to networks, and eventually to capital. And I think it's really interesting because again, you start to realize that like terms that we use mean really different things in different contexts. Like, you know, in America, people use black and brown, you know, and then people say, well, what about, you know, Asians, you know, East Asians. In the UK, people use the concept of like BAME, which doesn't mean anything to Americans. When I first came here, I was like, what is that BAME stuff? And then when you go to India and let's say to Africa, they're not minorities. In fact, if you look to the world, like Europeans are a minority or white Europeans are minority compared to people of color. You know, like your people of color or minorities, that's only a concept really in majority white countries. So it, it, it is really always important to understand that the terms that you use and the conflicts that you have are very kind of context specific and that they don't mean anything to other people and that you shouldn't try to impose those definitions or your way of understanding on people from other contexts. And I think 
it makes it really easy then when you're doing business to kind of say, okay, well, let me try and put myself in the other person's shoes. I think that's kind of like what's the best part about being an immigrant. I'm also like gay. So it's like, I'm used to having so many different contested identities that like, I always understand that it's easy to be misunderstood and that you should probably then try and put yourself in someone else's shoes. And that makes it really easy then to get people to want to do business with you because they feel seen and heard and respected. And I think that's really the key to everything. That's really interesting. Thank you. You mentioned in the quickfire introduction, your first first job was a paper But can you tell us a little bit about some of the careers that you had in the lead up to starting and scaling Founder Tribes? Yeah. So, I mean, I changed careers, I think, a number of times because like my dream in the U.S. was to be a litigator. So a lawyer, but like the ones that like are in court, like a Perry Mason or whatever. That was fun because I like to debate and like to argue. But then when I came to to Europe, I couldn't do that because that's kind of like you have to be a member of a local bar. And so like there's no like international version of that. So I had to kind of switch to corporate law. And then I worked at a bunch of different law firms doing like mergers and acquisitions, securities work, IPO stuff, which I found really boring. But I did it anyway for four years because that was like my passport to be able to come to Europe. Right? I had to find a job. And as a lawyer, those are the jobs that you can get as an international lawyer. And then I did that for about four or five years. And as I said, first in London, and then I got Freshfields to send me to Barcelona. I was working out of their Barcelona Madrid office, you know, kind of as their U.S. lawyer. And then eventually we got to the point where I was just like really expensive for the local rates. And so we had a conversation about my future and the options that presented themselves to me, like weren't that attractive. So then I had to kind of leave. And that was how I kind of became an entrepreneur, right? Because I was like, I'm in Barcelona because I didn't want to come back to the UK. I'm in Barcelona and I need to make some money. And I started, you know, I would read the Wall Street Journal every day and the New York Times. And I'm like, so what's an idea that's like happening in America right now that I can kind of transplant to Spain and then build a business out of it? And so, you know, this was like actually take two because take one was let's just do like the easy thing and create like a, get like a franchise, become a franchisee of a real estate business. So I did that and I had like, the exclusive license to, to the Eixample, which is like the uh, one of the central areas in Barcelona. But then you just realize, oh my God, there's no recurrence. Like every single month, even if I sell two properties, like I need to start from scratch, but my expenses are the same. So like this is when I learned the concept of like fixed costs, operating costs, recurrence, all that kind of stuff. And then I was like, I need a business where actually like every month you're building on what you already have, right? And it doesn't start from zero after you do a sale. Uh, and that was what led to kind of looking for a business that had those sorts of like characteristics, a digital business, meaning that I'd be able to make American style money, but in Europe, because that was important to me. And that was what led to my second business. So I did that. And then after we raised about $4 million for that business, we eventually sold it in 2016. But in 2010, you know, the economy in Spain wasn't that great. People started calling like a pig or whatever, or part of the, one of the pigs, you know, right after the global uh, recession. And I basically said, is now the time for me to go back to America? It had been 10 years at that point, almost to the dot of like being in Europe. And I was like, a decade is a really long time, time for me to go back home. And then a friend of mine from Yale, undergraduate, said, hey, why don't you come to Madrid and teach? And so I became a professor of entrepreneurship wow. at a business school called IE Business School. It's like one of the top business schools in the world and specifically in Europe. And I did that for a year. And then all of a sudden, Telefonica saw what I was doing and they were like, why don't you come and help us set up Wira? It was, you know, Y Combinator had been created about three years before. So it's an early stage investment vehicle for, well, it's a vehicle, a vehicle to invest in early stage companies. And so I was employee number two, 
hired by the kind of global CEO of, Wire, of, of Telefonica globally and did that in Spain for two or three years. And then they were like, you speak English. Why don't you go to London and basically kind of, you know, kind of rethink the way we're doing it in the UK and see if we can kind of scale it and make it more successful. And then I came in 2014 to London and then did that for about five years. You know, Wire, the way it worked is we invested about like $150,000 or a maximum at that point of $150,000 in startups. And then we also kind of housed them in a physical space. Eventually, we did it in Piccadilly Circus or a really beautiful building. Al Gore was on the top floor. Twitter was on the second floor and we were on like the fourth floor. So a really beautiful building. And we had a portfolio by the time I left of 185 startups that are now worth, I think, somewhere in the vicinity of like $1.2 billion. So that was kind of my last gig until I did Founder Tribes. Because I think what happened is after being at at Telefonica for nine years, you know, for me, like I'm still American and I kind of need to understand like, what's next? What's the next big challenge? How am I going to make more money? And I want more responsibility, more power. And it wasn't really forthcoming because I think the big difference between America and Europe is that Americans always want more. And Europeans are like, oh, well, this is good enough, but you have a good life. And I'm never happy with good enough and a good life. I always want more. And since, you know, I didn't think I was going to get it at Telefonica, then I had to just go out there and find it and build my own company. Where do you think that mentality comes from? Is that from your upbringing? Is that just, is that just inherent in you? That, or is that just an American trait, do you think? I think it's a, it's a very American trait. If you think about it, like the big difference between America and the UK is people here were like, we're not satisfied. We're going to cross the ocean and go to this like new country where there's nothing built up and they're like these Native American people and their diseases and it's okay because we want a better life. And you know what? And when the king says that he wants us to pay some taxes, we're going to fight him and we're going to try and start a new country from scratch, right? So I think that it's this whole like pioneer mentality, you know, cowboy mentality that's very much American. It's always like you're seen as a failure if you don't make more money than your parents, if each generation isn't successively more successful than the last one. It's it's a, a sense of like constantly building. And so the idea yeah. of stasis or stagnation is like very antithetical to the American way of seeing the world. Yeah, really interesting. I wanted to just talk about the wire experience. You talked about 185 startups over a billion dollars in value. It's an incredible, just an incredible achievement. Do you have any advice for any ambitious entrepreneurs that are listening to this that might be suffering from some of those early stage growth pains that anyone of us that have started a business have been through? Yeah, the, the first thing is like, you're not alone. You're not crazy. You're not stupid. It's meant to be hard and it's hard for everybody. I mean, one of the things that like I found really reassuring about Founder Tribes, like there's a part of it where we interview really successful founders or like unicorn founders. One of the people I interviewed was Ambush Kiki, the founder of 23andMe. And she's also the ex-wife of Sergi Brin, so the co-founder of Google. And, you know, talking to her, like you see that even though she had all of these you know, obviously she was married, he was a billionaire by that point, like, it was still really difficult, right? You, you still have like the same challenges, like, how do I get my first users? How do I get my first customers? How I'm fighting with my co-founder? You know, how do I get the right team? Like, it's always the same for founders. And so I think the key is just to remember that, like, all the challenges you've gone, you're going through, like, everyone else who's been a founder is going through them as well. Even the people who become the, the richest people in the world, they've gone through the exact same challenges, They've gotten through it. You can get through it as well. So don't give up because of that. If you are going to give up, it's because 
your business doesn't have a market and you should try to figure that out sooner rather than later. But don't let the other stuff, the noise be the, what causes you to quit. Yeah. And I really love what your, 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 your business is all about, uh, the USPs. I, I think I read the democratizes entrepreneurship by providing founders with access to feedback networks, capital. It's an awesome concept. I wanted to let you know about the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. Each week, they invite the world's most exciting artists, activists, thinkers, and leaders to share their visions for making the world a brighter place. Previous guests include Simon Sinek, Madeleine Albright, Hilary Cotton, Eric Schmidt, Malcolm Gladwell, Elizabeth Gilbert, Gina Miller, and many, many more. Find the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You clearly work with a lot of founders. What qualities do you look for in them that, that you can, I guess, differentiate from the, the good to the potential unicorn founder, perhaps? I think the big difference is passion and kind of like what I said before, resilience. Like, you know, I remember when the social network, the movie came out and, you know, they were talking about Mark Zuckerberg. There was an article in the New York Times and they called it the, um, I'm not going to remember the word, but there was a, a term for it. Oh my God, it's, uh, it's going to come to me hopefully. But it was a trait that Mark Zuckerberg had, which is like when everything else is going to hell around him, he was still singularly focused on turning Facebook into Facebook, right? And I feel like that's the number one trait. It's like, you know, people are smarter, less smart. They have more or less domain expertise. I think the number one thing is, are you able to just block out the noise and just focus and figure it out? Because, you know, it is like trying to find the vaccine to COVID. Like, you know, there are a lot of people out there trying to do it. It's a really difficult task. The person who's going to be able to do it first and best is going to be the one that's kind of really just focused on understanding what the experiment is, doing the tests required to kind of continuously iterate until you get closer to something that looks like the cure. Right. Um, yeah. And so I think that if you give up the first time the, you know, vaccine doesn't work, you know, then you're never going to be the one that's going to win the game. So resilience is is the key thing, you know, and, and the, remembering that it's not meant to be like a one year thing. That was the thing that differentiated like my first time being an entrepreneur. And now the first time I was like, oh, my God, so I'm going to do this and I'll become a billionaire in like two years. Now I understand that, like, usually it takes like 15 years, 10 to 15 years for your overnight success to happen. So just be prepared for this to be like a long journey full of ups and downs. And I know you only asked for one, yeah. but the third thing would be the team. The hardest part, you know, I watched Michael Jordan's movie, The Last Dance. And even if you're Michael Jordan, like the best basketball player of all time, if you don't have a really good team, you're not going to win the championship because one man or woman can't win the league by him or herself. So you have to kind of just make sure that as wonderful as you are and you have to be like up, you know, and, and, and in it, like you are also surrounded by other people that compliment you and don't be afraid to fire people. I mean, this is like very American, but don't be afraid to fire people if they can't deliver. Because the way I look at it, people are either contributing to helping you to realize your vision or they're detracting from it. There is no neutral point. Neutral is stagnation, is death. So you always need to be moving forward and you need people who can help you to move forward. doesn't mean that you can't, everyone can't have a bad day, but overall you have to understand really in your heart of hearts, is this person helping my mission or hurting the mission? And if it's neutral or hurting, they have to go. 
So much of what you said resonated with me. Um, I mean, firstly, the, the Michael Jordan documentary was one of the best things I've seen the last year in terms of inspiration, I think for an entrepreneur as well. And I think the the whole taking the long-term approach, I think is so important because startups is so sexy. We get calls every single day from people in banking and ex-lawyers like yourself that really want to work in this industry. But actually, when it comes down to it, do they really have the resilience, the passion and the the kind of grit to, to get into the scrappy early stage? And, and I think it's really right for some people, but it really isn't right for others. And so I think that's a that's a really interesting test. I love the the kind of empowering language that you you have on the Founder Tribes website. Um, you mentioned how like an overwhelming majority are overlooked or underestimated because they don't look the part. And I wanted to touch a bit about that on that part because we all know that the tech industry and the VC industry are not diverse enough. There's a long way ahead until we can get proper, I think, equal representation. So before we talk in more depth about DNI, what's your definition of it? Yeah, I think the best definition I ever heard was like uh, diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being invited to dance. So, yeah, that's kind of the way I think about it. So what do you think that companies could be doing to promote more of a diverse workforce, particularly in tech, which is obviously an industry you, you know a lot about? Yeah, no, I think that generally the problem with diversity is that people conceive of difference as risk and not as opportunity. Right. So, you know, I've heard like one VC say to me, like, oh, you know, well, if we hired women and minorities, you know, venture capital is risky enough, like we'd be taking an additional risk. And I'm like, implicit within that assumption is the notion that because I'm black or because a person's a woman, that she's a riskier proposition than you. And I said to him, if I look at my CV and I look at your CV and I look at like what my track record is and your track record is, why, why are you the safe bet? Actually, I'm the safer bet because I've actually accomplished mm. more, right? And people are like, you know, a bit perturbed when you kind of put it out like that. But it is like, you can't basically start with a presumption of my inferiority. Yeah. Particularly when it is a, a black and white question, not literally, literally, well, in this case, but also figuratively, we can just look at the track record. Like, we're, you know, so I don't, I, that's, that's my number one thing. We have to get over this presumption that if you take a woman or you take a person of color, they're inferior and therefore you're taking an additional risk, but you're doing it because you're a good charitable person. I don't want to be your charity case and I don't need to be either. Right. That's number one. And then what can companies do about it after they get rid of that implicit assumption is start to hire minority people and women in senior roles. Because at the end of the day, a lot of companies, what they'll do, you know, Amazon is in the news these days, you know. A lot of companies, what they'll do is, if you use the Amazon equivalent, they have a lot of people of color in the um, warehouses, you know, kind of moving stuff around, being the delivery people. In a law firm, maybe it's that you kind of get a lot of secretaries in, you know, or business development people in who are women and people of color, whereas the people who are making all the money and make all the decisions continue to look the same. So also don't do window dressing. I don't want to be your window dresser. The key to everything is giving access to power to decision-making power, to check-writing power, to women and people of color. 100%. And it's something that we're acutely aware of. I mean, in our role, a big part of what we do in Exec Search is, is, is trying to push this agenda forward. And, and interestingly, because we also do recruitment at the more junior levels, we're now seeing a huge proportion of, of really talented young up-and-comers 
really pushing back about, no, I, I don't want to work for these sorts of businesses because there is no one that it represents me. And they want to see that representation at the top table as they should. So, you know, I, I feel like we're making slow progress, but we are making some, but it, it needs to be bigger and it needs to be, uh, you know, I, and I think, yeah, we've all got a role to play there. But um, yeah, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. I really appreciate it. Do you have any tips for how companies and anyone listening to this that runs businesses can kind of boost creativity and entrepreneurship? across all communities in the UK? Because that's something we see, you know, comes up in conversation. Yeah, hire entrepreneurs. I mean, so, or incentivize people to think entrepreneurially. So um, I'll go with the first one first. You know, when I was at Waira, you know, the guy who is the CEO of Telefonica now, Jose Maria Alvarez Payete, he basically said to me, listen, Gary, we need someone like you because we don't know how this works, right? That was the, the pitch. And I thought, wow, like he's like really powerful, like, you know, a senior executive of Telefonica. At that point, he was CEO of Latin America, I think, but not like globally. That happened like a couple of years later. And I was like, that admission that like you need people who are entrepreneurial in your business, I think is the first step. Because a lot of people, I think they think of entrepreneurs, it's changed a lot in the last few years, as kind of like these charity cases as well. Like, oh, you know, I'm going to support an entrepreneur today. Like these like little people in a garage that kind of need an idea. A little, no, like we are the future. You know what I mean? Because everybody else is the past, right? So I think that that's number one, acknowledging it and then kind of going out there and recruiting people with those traits. And then the second thing is I interviewed recently for this thing I do for Yale, a friend of mine, and she's the COO of Reddit, right? And she's had like lots of different, you know, C-suite roles in different venture-backed companies, not just Reddit. I think she was also the president of digital at Time Incorporated, so traditional companies, and before that, McKinsey, AOL, all of it. But she's never actually been a founder herself. And she was like, listen, you have to know your risk profile. But even if you work in a senior position in another company, it doesn't mean, in someone else's company, it doesn't mean that you can't think entrepreneurially, right? So I think that like all she saw the difference being is that like she's not going to be the person to come up with the idea, but she's going to be the person to take the company on that next part of its journey, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's also really important if you can kind of recruit people who are entrepreneurial, even if they've never been entrepreneurs. Yeah, definitely. No, I think that's, that's, that's brilliant advice. Before we sadly come to the end of this conversation, Gary, you've spoken sort of in the media about how your experiences as a gay black man have influenced your career. And you've been named as on the power list of the 100 most influential black people in the UK. Congrats. What are the biggest hurdles that you've had to overcome, you know, with, in, in relation to that? And I guess, have you got any advice for anyone listening to this that may be kind of, you know, maybe questioning or, or, or maybe in a similar sort of situation that, that maybe just needs a bit of, uh, I guess, mentorship from someone like you? Yeah, I mean, I think like I personally have never really felt racism or discrimination, not because it doesn't exist, but probably because I prefer not to see it. So the thing is, let me unpack it. I mean, I've heard people say things to me that are racist, but it's almost like it just doesn't even touch me because I have a strong enough sense of self that I understand that the defect is with the other person, not with me. Right. So I think that's the way I approach it. Like people can call me whatever they want to. And like, they have a lot of different ways. They can be anti-gay. They can be anti-black. They can be anti-immigrant. They can be, you know, colonial in their thinking, whatever. Lots of different kind of options to kind of attack me if they wanted to. The thing is, I wouldn't really care that much because I'm like, I know who I am and I know what I can do. And the other person is the one that looks like the deficient person to me, not me. Now, of course, that takes 
a bit of time to develop that sense of confidence. And I think that my parents, you know, my aunt, when I was growing up, she had a phrase and I think it was like good that they told me this when I was like, maybe about like eight, you know, it was like, Gary, don't forget you're as good as any, you're better than many and you're inferior to none. And I feel like because that was kind of like inculcated in me at a very early age, even as I was growing up in the Bronx, I didn't really understand that we were in the Bronx. I was like, this is just home. You know what I mean? Like I never internalized any of these things that people thought. And if I did, then I kind of figured out how to kind of remove them relatively quickly. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm just saying, don't let other people define you, right? Define yourself, give yourself that power. And whenever you meet people who want to try and take away that power, screw them. Like, let them know that they can go right to hell because at the end of the day, I don't give anybody else the power to kind of define or demean me. Love that. Thank you, Gary. I'm sure that will have inspired a lot of people listening. We sadly are our last three wrap up questions, but I wanted to talk about mentorship. Unsurprisingly, you are on the 40 minute mentor after all. Do you have a mentor? And if so, how have they helped your career journey? I think like rather than like one person, I have a whole like armada of people that are useful <laughs> to me in like different contexts, especially now as a founder. Like I found that like relationships are the key currency to like success right? What is it? Your network is your net worth. I really believe that. So it's like every single day, I'll call up a different person and I'll be like, oh, I don't understand how digital marketing works. Can you help me think this through for my company? Or what's this thing about sales? Like help me, you know what I mean? Like literally like everything, there's someone I can kind of go to. And sometimes it's just like, you need someone to talk about like the difficult stuff that's going on. Like, oh my God, like I have to have this HR issue because a lot of them are HR issues. Help me through this. So I have a lot of people who I kind of identify as being really they haven't having a superpower in a certain place where I need to borrow that superpower every now and then. And then I kind of use them selectively. And I think the key to the mentorship relationship is that it's a two-way street. So even though you kind of want to always indulge and be like, me, 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 I also try to make sure that like, they also know that they can kind of come back to me whenever they need and ask me any questions. And if I can help them, I will. And that kind of stuff. So I just have like a lot of really good people that surround me and we support each other. And I guess I'm mentoring them and they're mentoring me. I don't know. Yeah, 100%. I I totally agree. I think I've improved as a leader ever since I've mentored others. And and they're like half the age of me, but I get a lot from that. And I'm, you know, I realize how sort of I'm not in, in the thick of everything that's going on if you're a teenager. And it's I learn tons from those sorts of conversations and and also, you know, actually keep me honest in some respects. So I think it's 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 really good for that to be a two way thing. Can I ask if you were to be mentored by one person, who would it be? Obama. I think a lot of people would agree with that one. <laughs> Brilliant. And and given sort of all the success you've had, you know, uh, across the globe, really, I'd be interested to know, what, what would you like to be remembered for? Yeah, for a life that mattered. You know what I mean? Like, it, people always ask me, like, what is it that you want? What's your goal in life? And I'm like, to have that when I die, there is um, a front page article on the New York Times talking about my life and why it mattered. So I think that like, and, and the specific thing I want to be remembered for that mattered is like solving the issue of leveling the playing field for a lot of people who came from a background that I did, had a lot of isms that could be used to negate them, but then somehow they felt freed and empowered by me. Thank you. And our last question, Gary, before we finish up, for any listeners thinking about creating a startup, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? 
don't give up. Remember, like even a lot of the greatest founders that we think of, like Steve Jobs, how many times did he get kicked out of Apple and had to come back? You know, Amazon, it was 20 years before Jeff Bezos was where he was. Elon Musk, how many times have they written him off with just Tesla? You know, Twitter was Jack Dorsey's third attempt at kind of this, you know, short form of communication. So everyone wants to tell you that entrepreneurship is really easy. It's painful. And even the people that we admire and think of as the most successful entrepreneurs have been through the exact same pain and they've overcome it. And the reason that they've become successful is because they didn't give up. Brilliant. That's uh, so a very inspiring place to leave this. Um, Gary, it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much for being our 40 Minute Mentor today. And uh, we wish you all the very best with Founder Tribes. I love what you're doing and I'm sure you'll make it a huge success. So all the best with it. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.